Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to yet another episode of Brain Buzz. We are your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we're joined by special guest, friend of the show, uh, friend of ours in real life. Um, <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> Ryan Tom. Yeah. Ryan. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Well, absolutely. And friends going too far, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll take it as a step back. Uh, <laughs> a colleague. No, I'm just kidding. Mutual acquaintance. acquaintance. <laughs> no, we're, we're super excited to have you on the show. Um, yeah. And so we have... Uh, Ryan, the re- like, you know the reason why we want, we had you on was because you started off in behavioral neuroscience, mm-hmm. uh, and then you've transitioned into social psychology now, right? Uh, or no, more co- cognitive. cognitive. Yeah, yeah. So but still, actually, I'm so I'm still in behavioral neuroscience, but I'm doing more human cognitive right. stuff. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So you're changing from like this, a- like working with animals and, and mice, mm-hmm. uh, to the more human models where you're going to be implementing kind of similar work or something. A yeah, little yeah, bit near yeah. The same. Similar. I'm actually trying to do translational stuff from the animals to the humans. Yeah, yeah. that's great. So yeah. this this is going to be perfect for us. So we've wanted to have uh i mean kyle and i have been trying to get new guests on from different areas uh broaden our horizons broaden our bit. broaden our re- like the research areas that we're, we're getting into and the science that we're covering so behavioral neuroscience is uh, tightly interwoven with psychology mm-hmm. but it, there, it is a unique uh, aspect of psychology that doesn't have the same kind of feel uh, as a researcher yeah well i mean i think you get that sense at the beginning but i think if you look at it it, it does have a lot of connections and the fact that well in behavioral neuroscience we really focus on the behavior, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we think of these different types of functions or behaviors that we do, like what is the things going on in the brain that kind of make that happen rather than just the psychological as far as, um, uh, you know, just psychological, it's more like psychological with like what's going on in the brain with neurotransmitter systems or, or brain circuits and stuff like that. Do you mind just giving us kind of a sense as to what behavioral neuroscience research is so that we can kind of, start to compare it with cognitive and, and then be able to understand where you're going, how you're moving from one into cognitive now? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I think the, the thing with cognitive is, uh, you know, in humans, um, you know, it's tough to look into the brain uh, of humans and, and, and especially behaving humans. Um, uh, you know, and a lot of the stuff when we can look at the brains in, in humans is usually, you know, postmortem. Uh, and so the thing that's really cool about behavioral neuroscience is that we can uh, and because of the evolution of the, the rat brain is very similar to the human one, we can kind of look at, um, you know, rats or, uh, or mice or even um, um, uh, monkeys or apes and stuff like that to kind of get a better picture of uh, what is going on in the human brain. So we try to use that as kind of information to inform us about what potentially could be happening in the human brain. Um, and so we kind of build theories around that and then we test them and you know sometimes they're informative for humans and sometimes you know it doesn't turn out that way but uh yeah yeah and so now now from what you've said you're you're working to to really take some of those theories and models that have been built and developed um in other species yeah and be able to then apply them in humans and see if we can map some of that same exactly and so that's actually so uh that's what i'm going to be doing now for my phd work is basically um, taking uh, an animal model, a task that's been uh, done in in, uh, in rats and designed um, by my master supervisor, and reverse translate that to humans uh, to be able to um, to do the work and make it more behavioral based, and uh, we'll we'll do a pharmacological manipulation, um, and so we'll give like a you know a drug and see um, if that is similar to does that alter the behavior in a similar way as it does rodents. And so trying to see this translation, does it translate from rodents to animals and vice versa? And in fact, a lot of the um, 
behavioral neuroscience and animal work had you know the tasks have been developed from tasks that have sometimes been originally developed in humans okay and then so we try to take that task and we try to simplify it how can we test say behavioral flexibility in a rodent when they you know when we know how they test it in you know a, a cognitive experiment with humans so mm -hmm. we just try to do that with rats yeah so uh, you touched on behavioral flexibility can you give us a little ideas to what that is yeah, so behavioral flexibility is, um, when you think about it, it's kind of like your ability to adapt to changing environmental circumstances. So if you think about it, uh, you know, doing one thing, you know, it might give you, a, you know, reward or it might be beneficial for a period of time, but, you know, things in the environment change and how quickly are you able to disengage from previously successful strategies, but now unsuccessful, and then try out new strategies and that are more successful and kind of shift. Mm. And so... Um, Behavioral, behavioral flexibility is, uh, you know, a set of executive functions uh, mediated by the prefrontal cortex. And it's really important and uh, in, uh, in survival of, of uh, you know, animals evolutionarily, but then also just in humans uh, now. Yeah. And in fact, we see that uh, a lot of um, uh, psychiatric um, um, disorders are actually um, co uh, behavioral flexibility is affected in one way, perturbed in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I mean, I'm going to use an example because I'm always thinking about relationship research, but would it, would uh, behavioral flexibility, when I'm thinking of that, I'm like, uh, when you're in a relationship with somebody, mm -hmm. you have certain patterns that you have, uh, your behavior with one person uh, may have been positive. It may have worked out that you, whenever they were mad, you would do one thing. And, and it always work. And it would always work. Yeah. And then turns out the next person you're you, you're in a relationship with, you you try to do that again, and it doesn't. And it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. And that flexibility would would be, can you adapt to that and change to figure out what the best outcome is in the new relationship? Absolutely. And you know what? Sometimes it's context dependent too, because in one scenario, um, you know, kind of uh, persistently doing that same thing might be beneficial because sometimes you don't always get rewarded for doing the same thing, but over the long run you might so sometimes ha being a little per persistent in that strategy or uh you know that rule that you're applying uh might be good but in some circumstances maybe it's not and you have to know okay well at what point should i try to try something new mm -hmm. and i think that's a kind of a balance that we all you know try to strike in life and sometimes it's hard to figure out from a evolutionary perspective it makes sense that as, and as you said to, to protect yourself and to survive you need to be adaptable and, oh. and flexible with your behavior absolutely like you could imagine that uh, you're living in an environment um that you know in the past has been you you're able to get all your food you're able to you know hunt and, and get water and it's really easy but then a drought comes along mm -hmm. and so it's it spends it costs a lot of energy to try to go out to another places to search for food mm -hmm. um but maybe, you know, just sticking it out through that one season will be beneficial because in the long run, you know, it's going to be plentiful wherever you are. But maybe, you know, it's changing and there's going to be many droughts and it's going to be better for your survival to kind of go to other places and explore for sure. I find that interesting. And this may be me getting a little bit out there mm -hmm. uh, and you can tell me to just re rein it in if I need to. But uh, for me, I think of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. OK. Uh, and this is just like... Uh, a psychology like intro psychology that they all usually talk about like you need you have these certain like hierarchy of needs that need to be met yeah so the first being physiological needs safety food love being like food and, and water and stuff like that and then you have love and belonging then esteem and then just self-actualization i imagine as you get through those uh you still need to be adaptable and your behavior needs to be uh adaptive and flexible to meet those needs oh in for a sense, sure right so like my relationship example that's not a, a necessarily something that's requiring you to be 
safe or protect your life. Yeah. But it's something that it will impact your life in some way and your behavior can impact your life in like a myriad of ways. Well, right? for sure. I think that, uh, you know, at any level of say the hierarchy, there's a certain aspect of flexibility that you could have maybe at each level and not having that maybe would spill over to other parts of your life for sure. Right. And yeah. so that, that rigidity in your behavior, I imagine is always bad. No, I like, I mean, so that's the, that's the question. So if you're underneath a probabilistic, say, type of uh, scenario, mm. uh, so sometimes you get rewarded, sometimes you don't, then actually being persistent is more beneficial. And sometimes it's the way you frame it. So if you say, uh, oh, yeah, I'm being persistent, usually that's like, you know, seen as a good thing. But if you say, oh, you're, you know, being perseverative, mm -hmm. then maybe that's not good because it's, you know, things have changed and you're holding on. So, I mean, I mm. think that it's... Uh, it's a little bit matter of uh, perspective, and again, depends on the circumstances. But um, um, yeah, that, that's really interesting. So, I mean, I think I'll, I'll let Kyle jump in after he's <laughs> raring at the bit. But my one follow up is that makes sense to me in a certain sense where uh, you may not get immediate payoff. Uh, mm. If your behavior is inflexible, are you talking about your gymnastic skills? Because I think <laughs> you read my mind. <laughs> I mean, when it comes to being rigid in your behavior and have, having no like immediate payoff, yeah, I think of like this hedonic approach where uh, you 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 seek pleasure, you seek this immediate payoff, and if mm -hmm. you're not getting that, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should change your behavior right away, right? So this being Absolutely. flexible with your behavior doesn't mean that you're flip flopping all the time. You can still be persevere and be consistent yeah for a good reason for this long-term payoff right exactly so that so i think that's the whole thing around behavioral flexibility is you know uh you look at things as you know oh it's it's bad to be rigid say right mm -hmm. but it depends is it bad to be uh rigid and inflexible when you need to be persistent and push on like if yeah. you're you know uh um, a football player or something like that, or you get cut from the team mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and you just think you're not good enough. Maybe it's good to try another sport, but maybe, you know, if Michael Jordan didn't yep. keep persisting and, you know, he wouldn't have become the best basketball player of all time. Exactly. So it's not, so it's, it's kind of a little bit matter of circumstance. Um, and yeah, what the payout is going to be, I guess, over the, over the long term. Yeah. And I think that you can, uh, be driven by more immediate, like those hedonic things that like you said immediately. Mm. And, uh, sometimes Ryan, we're not going to dive too deeply into human tasks today because we'll have you back and we'll we'll get your your thoughts on them at another date but oh damn <laughs> i know sorry it's okay no it just means you get to hang out i know more again. about the rodent stuff anyway so <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure you're pretty darn smart at yeah. this this human stuff too but uh, let's kind of for a second think of what an analogous task in humans would look like if we were talking about uh, behavioral flexibility or something like set shifting okay yeah, yeah. So the Wisconsin card sorting task um, is a task in humans that they give these cards and they have to try to sort them based on certain kind of characteristics. It could be the color of the card, a shape on the card, how what the number of shapes are on the card. Right. So and a so, set of rules. There's yeah, a set of rules so that a, define how so, they... Yeah, is, there's these yeah. set of rules that you kind of have to start sorting on. And then eventually, you know, it, it shifts and, and then you have to use, uh, so it's called a set shift. So it sets, uh, a shifts sets in the way that say you were sorting before based on color next, you have to sort based on shape. So a different kind of dimension of, mm. of rule. And so in, in rodents, um, and, and sorry, and you're not told as, as a participant, you're not told that no, the, the rules have changed. No, no. So yeah. you just, you're, you're sorting. Suddenly they say some, wrong. Some, suddenly they say, they say wrong. And then you got to try to figure out what the, you know, well, why is it wrong? You right. might get a couple wrong. And, you know, perseverate and, you know, persist on that old rule that was working for you. 
um, and and you know eventually you'll learn oh, hey maybe I should try something out and then you would shift your and try out different things and you're like oh I got rewarded on that and then you might have you know thinking in your mind like okay well is it this and then you try that out maybe you get it right or wrong and then you kind of base it on that to mm. try to figure out the new strategy to kind of get rewarded yeah mm -hmm. and so in rodents they have a very analogous task and that's mostly what I'll be talking about today um, and that was my master's work was looking at behavioral flexibility um, specifically one of the biggest tasks was the set shifting strategy set shifting task which is analogous to the Wisconsin card sorting task in humans um, and I was looking at how steroids affected this behavior it's more specifically how uh, local steroid production within the brain um, can affect behavioral flexibility mm -hmm. yeah when we say steroids you're what do you mean yeah you're talking about like juiced up rats like yeah the biggest like... rats in the cage <laughs> yeah yeah so when they're uh, just lifting they're so ripped <laughs> so when i say steroids well steroids is basically a hormone and um it, traditionally you know hormones are thought of as these kind of blood-borne product uh, products that kind of are produced in an endocrine gland travel through the blood to distant targets to have their effects on tissue and steroids is just kind of one uh, category of that. And yeah, it's, it's exactly like, you know, testosterone. You think of testosterone, uh, you know, that's a sex steroid, say. Um, and, you know, people will juice up on that. So like, uh, looks like you've been juicing up. <laughs> on Please don't flatter me. <laughs> and uh, so hey, yeah. juicing up on it, but not working out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so steroids, you know, they're very important and they uh, affect a lot of um kind of gene expression throughout your body and they, they're very powerful but they're often times thought of um, traditionally as kind of being these long-acting kind of uh, uh, hormones that uh, you know act over a long t period of time to affect um, your behavior mm -hmm. um, but I looked at it in the context of um, executive function which again it wasn't really uh, you know not too many studies in the past have looked at uh, steroids effect on executive function um, because, you know, usually we look at like, say, aggression right. um, or sexual behavior when we're um, uh, when we're thinking of sex steroids, like, say, testosterone or estradiol. But in my my master's work, I, um, I, I looked at local steroid production of androgens. So androgens is um, the kind of umbrella term for a bunch of different, uh, you know, type of steroids, like which includes testosterone, um, something called DHEA. Um, estradiol um, is, is, is an estrogen, so it's kind of down the, the um, metabolic pathway mm -hmm. um, of, uh, of what, what it's produced. So a lot of people don't actually know this, but uh, testosterone, fun fact, is testosterone is actually a precursor to estradiol. And, um, you know, people think of testosterone as being male and uh, estradiol as being female, um, but it's actually males contain both estradiol and testosterone. And females contain both testosterone and estradiol. It's just the relative amounts of each that they mm. kind of have that is different. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so you talked a lot about ex executive functioning, Ryan. What is executive functioning for people that are not familiar with cognitive psychology? So executive functions, it's, it is kind of um, uh, a weird umbrella term. It's kind of uh, it's a catch-all. Yeah, right? it's a like, catch-all kind yeah. of uh, term that we use. And it's kind of a collection of these cognitive processes that... Uh, kind of involve this integration of different types of information uh, to kind of enable uh, and implement kind of different behavioral strategies to obtain a goal. Uh, and the pr it's usually thought to be mediated by the prefrontal cortex. And some examples of uh, executive function, well, would be behavioral flexibility, like I was talking about, mm -hmm. uh, working memory, so keeping things in um, kind of uh, 
your your you know short term memory to be able to kind of manipulate and work um, mm -hmm. to kind of obtain your goals, um, right. attention, planning, uh, inhibitory control. So these kind of are all these kind of uh, little functions that are thought to be mediated a lot by the prefrontal cortex and. Right. Yeah, it's kind of this catch-all phrase, executive functions. Yeah, like things that are basically allowing you to think on your feet and 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 process things at, at exactly. One and time. I mean, I think when you think of an executive in like a you know a business sense, it's kind of like this uh, guy at the top who's kind of uh, you know controlling things um, down below. Yeah, so it's like an executive that has his finger on the pulse in uh, in the sense of like a business, right? So he has control over all these things. I think it's a really good example and a really good way of explaining what executive functioning is. Um, so now let's kind of get into the work that you did within your master's thesis, if that's cool with you, Ryan. Uh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we talked we'll about, we now know what executive functioning is and what you're, why, like what it does. Yeah. And then we, we, we address what behavioral flexibility is and how that can impact humans. But you look, use uh, animal models within behavioral neuroscience. So you guys are testing these things in mice or rats, right? Yeah. So I did it in rodents. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In rats. And so, what did you, how, how did you do it? Like, so, so what was the process? Yeah. So I, in my master's, I basically, um, I was working with Dr. Kieran Soma and he does a lot of endocrinology work. And, um, we, we basically were very interested in, uh, something called uh, local synthesis of steroids. And so we got these, uh, um, these, these rats and we wanted to see um, how local synthesis was affecting behavioral flexibility, and we wanted to test them on uh, uh, an operant chamber task, which was analogous to the Wisconsin card sorting task. And uh, like I kind of uh, said a little bit earlier, it's uh, called the strategy set shifting task. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I got, yeah, I got these rodents, and uh, I got this drug called abiraterone acetate. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so that fast. <laughs> and, and so this is the kind of thing that's uh, really interesting about behavioral neuroscience and just uh, doing this kind of work in for science in general is um, um, local steroid synthesis is actually very important um, in prostate cancer research. And so this drug that I used for my study, um, abiraterone acetate, is, is, is a really big drug used in trying to mitigate the growth of prostate cancer. Um, because what happens is androgens um, promote the um, progression of a tumor. And then so what they'll usually do is um, they'll either pharmacologically or actually literally, you know, castrate males um, to kind of reduce this testosterone production uh, or, or this androgen production. So that way the tumor will, you know, uh, go away. And what you find is actually after, uh, you know, after that it, it works. So the tumor kind of starts to recede and go, and go away. Um, but then they started finding that, uh, you know, after about, say, six weeks, um, the tumor starts to grow again. Hmm. And, um, and, and when they do a little biopsy of the tumor, they see that, well, you know, even though you don't have any systemic testosterone, that tumor has testosterone within it. And so this whole idea of uh, local steroid synthesis um, is one of the main things in our lab that we look at. Um, and, and, and we're very interested also in, in executive functions as well. So we wanted to see, well, is um, local steroid synthesis occurring in the brain? And does it help uh, regulate uh, you know, different types of executive functions like behavioral flexibility? Um, because, um, you know, for instance, it might be very relevant for things like aging. Mm. So tying it back to humans again, when you age, especially in males, testosterone levels decrease, right? And, and so, um, and y it kind of coincides with the time that executive function is kind of becoming impaired during aging. Yeah. And so, you know, what is the difference between people who, you know, age kind of what we would maybe call more successfully in that they don't have cognitive impairments during right. aging 
versus people who do show a large impairment? Is it that you know the people who are kind of protected against uh, this de cognitive decline are they producing steroids locally in the brain to help kind of help um, mitigate these kind of uh, changes? And so we wanted to look at uh, do an experiment uh, looking to test this if if local steroid synthesis was occurring in the brain and whether that might help kind of keep behavioral functions intact. Right. And so that was yeah how we how we got started. Interesting. Okay, so. That's a lot. <laughs> a lot of information. To Sorry, I know sometimes I'm a... No, 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 no. It's really a good. A lot, but in a good way. So yeah. there's a lot of really like, you're already translating it to humans. And like, you, that, that's how this research is, uh, why this research is so impactful is because although people tend to see it as, oh, you're just testing stuff on animals, uh, that animal testing, there's a, there's a real reason why we're doing this animal testing in the end, because we want to address how it will impact humans. Absolutely. Right? And I think that, you know, there is a misconception out there that, uh, you know, people doing behavioral neuroscience uh, research is that we just sit in like, you know, a corner just like, you know, torturing rats or something like that. Um, we don't do that. And uh, I mean, we, a lot of people actually doing behavioral neuroscience research are, you know, really caring about, um, you know, uh, animals' health and, and uh, well-being and safety and stuff like that. But a lot of the stuff is, is kind of needed. Like, you know, any type of drug that you use, um, uh, that has kind of been developed for for human uh, health has been typically first uh, done through uh, through rodent research, and uh, you know because we learn a lot about it, its effects and and it's you know uh, lots of human lives have changed because of it, uh, and if anything too because we do this research in rodents, the the animal uh, or or the species that we know the most about <laughs> is actually rodent health and yeah. and more so than even human in some ways, right? Yeah. Because a lot of this research is done in rodents. Yeah. yeah. So so yeah, all the um, kind of animal stuff like and how much it informs human health goes back to my uh, original, you know, my study and that we use this drug abiraterone acetate, which is used in prostate cancer research mm -hmm. um, because it's an androgen synthesis inhibitor. It mitigates the tumors. Um, but it also because it's an androgen synthesis inhibitor, we could give it to our animals to see we could actually block testosterone uh, production locally in the brain and see how that affects behavior. So we had uh, actually, uh, you know, in my study, in my master's, we had four different groups. Uh, we had animals that um, had either their systemic supply uh, intact, so they had their, their gonads or their testes. Mm -hmm. um, so they're able to produce testosterone locally or androgens locally. Or, I mean, sorry, uh, not locally, but systemically. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, put it into the blood to go to the brain. Um, but then we also gave this um, drug, abiraterone acetate, which crosses the blood-brain barrier, and knocks out androgens everywhere in the body. So not only in, uh, you know, the systemic in the circulation, but also in the brain. And so we had that and a vehicle group. And so basically we had uh, um, either groups that would have um, neural uh, testosterone intact or a group, uh, two groups that would have no um, neural testosterone. Okay. Yeah. And then so what we found was even the, the animals that were gonadectomized, so they t we took away their systemic supply, but they still had, uh, they had the vehicle, so they didn't have this drug. Um, they had local steroid synthesis intact in the brain. And in this behavioral task on the, um, the strategy set shifting, behavioral flexibility task, they performed the same as intact animals who had their systemic supply um, of testosterone. Okay. So it kind of maintained that, that behavioral function. But the animals who got the drug, this abiraterone acetate, they both of those groups performed differently, uh, but the same. So, so it's like the two groups with abiraterone performed the same, 
and then the two groups uh, you know w that were allowed to have neural testosterone perform the same so the, so the two groups that had the drug one had the gonadectomy one of them had the gonadectomy and then so one didn't and it, they still performed, performed similarly or, yeah exactly so so uh, and we measured testosterone in the blood and they had no testosterone in the blood mm. and then uh, we so we measured a variety of different steroids uh, in a bunch of different brain regions known to mediate this uh, strategy set shifting so we looked at the prefrontal cortex we looked at uh, the nucleus accumbens. We looked at the ventral tegmental area, the VTA, which is really, uh, uh, which is where all the dopamine neurons kind of project to kind of help regulate these uh, executive functions uh, to the to the rest of the brain. Um, and yeah, so we looked at all these different brain regions, and we wanted to see, um, you know, okay, is there testosterone there in that one group that was gonadectomized? Were they able to upregulate testosterone? And um, we also measured a bunch of different other steroids because taking out one steroid sometimes can affect different types right. of steroids. Yeah. And so in this, we found that, uh, well, it didn't really affect uh, the, the steroid pattern. Um, we didn't, well, first of all, I'll just say we didn't actually find testosterone in the brain. So we didn't measure testosterone. So that kind of um, perplexed us. Mm -hmm. um, but the other steroid, you know, there wasn't any steroid changes in, say, corticosterone or cortisol, um, which could be mediating that effect. It didn't fit the behavioral pattern. Um, and cortisol is generally... Cortisol is a stress hormone, and, and yeah. what happens is testosterone actually regulates cortisol, so it kind of suppresses corti uh, corticosterone um, um, uh, synthesis and release. Right. And so, um, so by taking away testosterone, you might be increasing this co uh, uh, corticosterone, which might be having this effect. But we found that it wasn't that. Okay. Um, but as I talked about earlier, um, testosterone is a precursor for estradiol. And so uh, what we think is actually occurring is that um, in the brain, testosterone, you know, is getting produced, but then right, uh, you know, it's, get, it's, it's probably getting um, 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 converted into estradiol um, quickly to have its effects. And so, um, so yeah, the next step, the, and the thing about estradiol, especially in the male brain, it's very hard to measure. You have to have a lot of brain tissue to do it. And then if we're trying to do it in these localized regions, it's tough to tell. Right. So okay. as far as the behavior goes, it's very interesting. It's very suggestive of... Um, that um, there, there's uh, some type of local steroid synthesis occurring in the brain, um, and uh, and it's helping maintain these behavioral functions. Um, and um, so the next thing that we want to look like, you know, that my lab now I, I've I've switched research streams now, but what the lab wants to look at next is actually giving abiraterone acetate to specific brain regions. So mm. you know, is it being mediated mediated by the prefrontal cortex? Is it being mediated by the nucleus accumbens? Mm -hmm. um, so give that with a shot of testosterone back to see if um, is it now puts the behavior back to, to baseline, um, or um, um, or even give like some type of um, androgen or estrogen receptor antagonist at the same time. So we know okay, well if we can't measure testosterone, is it being um, uh, is the mechanism through estradiol? Right. We can do that by giving some type of antagonist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Hmm. And so those, and just to confirm, I mean, just to go back to the findings that you found in this study, uh, the ones that were had this local uh, steroid uh, synthesis occurring, mm -hmm. or they had it what, systemic. What we think. Yeah. So, so, so again, I want to be careful in uh, yes. overextending my findings because one study um, can't, yeah. can't concur. So, so it's very suggestive based on, you know, abiraterone being able to cross the blood-brain barrier that, you know, um, that there's local synthesis occurring in the animals that were gonadectomized but didn't get abiraterone because mm -hmm. they had the same behavioral function as normal control animals. Right. So, but we couldn't measure testosterone. So, um, so, so it's suggestive and it's one of the first behavioral kind of experiments 
in regards to executive function to show a possible um, role of local synthesis as far as behavior goes. Right. We know that it's uh, you know important for um, immune development, local steroid synthesis. We know it's in uh, you know uh, important in prostate cancer, mm -hmm. um, but we haven't really uh, and and actually in birds in in. Um, uh, in the non-breeding season um, to show aggression, but hmm. we haven't really uh, looked at it as far as executive functions go or, or no one has shown an effect. And so this is suggestive and, and very exciting and follow-up research would have to actually kind of, of see if that's the case or not. Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned yeah. that. That's yeah. something that we always try and strive to, to reiterate here is that just because one study has shown something doesn't mean that is the end-all be-all and that's the answer. Exactly. Um, but the, very cool. So, so they, they had this, their behavioral flexibility was the proxy of executive functioning in that study, right? Exactly. So that's how you figured out it, it has an imp it could have an impact on executive functioning through their effectiveness in the tasks exactly. and the ability to change uh, to adapt to the tasks. Yeah. Um, very cool. Very cool research. Do you want to guess though? I haven't actually told you what happens to behavioral flexibility. Okay, so. Mm. I, my guess would be that the ones with is it Abby what's what? Abby Raderone. Abby Raderone. Yeah. So with the ones that had Abby Raderone were less uh, were not able to adapt to the new task. So interestingly, no. Oh really? So actually, so this is and it kind of fits in with research, and this is part of the reason why we chose behavioral flexibility. Um, was research um, in the seventies? It was done, and no one really ended up looking at it more. But just kind of give it like just looking at testosterone, not local synthesis, but just you know testosterone's effect on behavioral flexibility. They found that more testosterone made uh, made males more uh, persistent or less flexible. Okay, so they were more. So if you think about it, more testosterone right, right. makes you more kind of persistent, which kind of makes sense. Like you know, mm -hmm. if you're a, a, a evolutionary in a territorial kind of right. uh, attack yeah. or whatever, and you know you want to kind of maybe increase testosterone to kind of fight for that prime territory, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, you know, and then so having less testosterone actually makes you more flexible trying out new things. Fascinating. Less yeah. testosterone makes you make better decisions. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, trying. Well, I mean, and again, it always depends on context. Um, but you know, yes, in an oversimplified, overextended uh, version, yes, that's what it is. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's, it's kind of funny because I think that actually is like that's a common concept, like misconception or myth within pop culture is that. Oh, the person who, like the guy with most testosterone is like usually the hothead that's just stubborn, right? Stubborn, yeah. doesn't do anything, mm -hmm. just does whatever he wants to do, and like that's it. He's a one-track mind kind of, exactly. and so it's it's kind of playing off that kind of misconception where testosterone does have an impact on your rigidity, maybe possibly. It promotes persistence and yeah, yeah. persistence, yeah. and so sometimes that could be good, sometimes that could be bad. Exactly, uh, and usually. Uh, that's how myths are generally developed because there's usually a lot of examples of bad things happening. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's really there's interesting. There's some grain of truth somewhere yeah. deep, buried deep within. There has to be within a myth and misconception. That's why we like talking about them. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so uh, just quickly though, to even talk about the, a little bit more about the behavior is the whole thing was, uh, uh, um, the whole type of error that they made um, was perseverative errors. So it was, a, it was a, when you gave that drug, they had reduced perseverative errors. So it's specific to, um, perseveration because there's different you know there's like behavioral flexibility there's a bunch of different components right so first initially you have to try to disengage from the previous rule so that's right. kind of you know you're, if giving, you're doing you're that a lot that's perseveration yeah now um, there's another type of error called regressive errors that we call and regressive errors are basically okay you've learned that that old rule is not quite right so you try something else but then you regress back to that old thing okay mm. and then there's um, something which we call never reinforced errors and that's just kind of like uh, an index of you know try just trying out like almost like random things like you you try out like different See if things. Working, so you, you, you kind of have like so it's almost like uh, like um, 
uh, strategy, you know, development, maybe you can even argue. Yeah. But it, so there's all these different components, but it was specific to the preservative. So they find it hard to disengage from that old rule. Interesting. And so that's that's specifically what we found in the males. Yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. I think it's really cool when it comes down to behavior. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because, I mean, I've never done any of these tasks. <laughs> uh, I know that they test humans on these tasks, similar tasks on how how they can adapt to come by my lab we can make it happen no i'd rather not actually. <laughs> <laughs> i know that they can be kind of dry sometimes <laughs> it's so bad <laughs> what we do to our participants is just the worst <laughs> but it's really it's really it has a lot of impact i think and so the next question we're gonna ask is about the implications of this mm-hmm. i mean i'm thinking just from a behavioral flexibility aspect we've, we've talked a bit about the implications that it has on humans i mean but is that the implications that behavioral neuroscience uh, research claims or what it, do they just talk strictly this about the the, the rodent models and well, saying the impact it has in the rodent models or do you do they usually reach to say this could have an impact on humans absolutely so i think the the thing that i've kind of been learning in, in graduate school is that a lot of things are kind of more hypothesis driving and sometimes yeah you, you can make you don't want to make a claim that yeah it's it's definitely the same in humans but it definitely is suggestive based on, you know, a bunch of previous research and things that have been first done in rodents that have been kind of shown to be the case also in humans and then vice versa, things that are done in humans, testing it on animals. And so it's definitely suggestive. And, and for example, you know, uh, prostate cancer. And uh, so there's, a mil- you know, millions of people with prostate cancer. And so if you're giving them this drug, how is that affecting them in their jobs and mm-hmm. in, in their behavior and their decision making? Um, so uh, that could be suggestive of, of uh, you know, things to test in humans and to see if this will have these kind of um, real life implications. Yeah. yeah well, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, part of the work that my lab has done and not work that I do in my lab, uh, mm-hmm. but my colleagues um, has been looking at the effects of things like chemo on the brain. Yeah. And, and what the cognitive outcomes are. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, it's really interesting that we can start, you know, we start at these very sort of, I don't want to say low level, but these these very basic ways of understanding it so much of our work starts at the behavioral neuroscience level and you know i think like you're doing part of the job of other researchers and other psychologists is then to take it a step further and say okay this is how it's working in humans now exactly so being able to provide researchers with that sort of biological base (laughs) biological base to then build off of going yeah and that understanding i think in the future for i mean uh, even uh, animal behavioral neuroscientists uh, and versus cognitive people, sometimes we speak a different language. But you know, going back and forth and making those, uh, I think making those uh, connections with people it, throughout different fields is, is very beneficial. Because then again, you're going to be um, you know being more efficient in your research. You're going to be designing better studies. You're going to be communicating better, and, and then actually testing to see is, is this relevant for humans as well, or is it just specific to rodents? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, Ryan. I kind of want to get your perspective on just behavioral neuroscience in general and, and how you got into it and what it kind of looks like from your perspective, because we've had a lot of researchers on talking about how they do their research. Mm-hmm. They all vary in the way that they go about it. Uh, yours is very unique yeah, uh, compared to most psychology researchers. So so what is the experience of a BNS researcher and how did you kind of get into it? Yeah. So, I mean, I never actually thought that I was going to get into behavioral neuroscience. Um I, I was wanting to actually get into clinical psychology um, when I came back to school. And uh, I actually took, as part of my, one of my requirements for psychology, I took this animal behavior course. And that ended up turning out to be my master's supervisor. So I took this course and it was, I found it very interesting. And 
you know, my uh, 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 my professor was very smart. So I was like, oh, I could learn a lot about him. I want to get involved in research. So I went to him naively and I was like, hey, can I get involved in research? And I had no real science background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I, I asked him, can I get involved in research? And he's like, kind of like, ah, no, but I was persistent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, you know what? Like, um, uh, you know, I, I know maybe I don't have much to offer now, but I'm a hard worker and, you know, just give me anything and I'll do it. So I started off actually um, scoring bird videos. So one of the uh, graduate students in the lab um, did, did work in birds and zebra finches in Australia and it was literally watching hours and hours of videos of birds flying in and out of nesting boxes, uh, males and females, because they were trying to look at uh, kind of parental care. And, um, and so it was funny, I just like be watching for hours and hours, I have to write down the time, how long they were in there. But sometimes like on these videos, it was like super windy the trees were flying and it was like this small little spot and you had to see if it was male or female and they'd fly in and out so quickly. <laughs> it was really hard. So you like have to pause it and then start it. And, uh, um, actually one time, uh, the graduate students kind of funny that, uh, I was working for, they were watching something what they thought was for a, a half an hour. Um, but it was actually paused because it was very still at that moment. And they're just watching it, watching it. <laughs> no, and, no. Yeah. and then they realized that after a half an hour that it was actually paused. <laughs> So that's how I started off in behavioral neuroscience. It wasn't that fun. But um, because of my hard work, I kind of showed myself and I was very interested. And then so my supervisors um, gave me uh, an aging kind of experiment to do uh, in rodents. And then so I, I you know, I get in, um, you know, uh, um, I start having to learn how to handle uh, rod uh, rats. And I was like, you know, before I was like freaked out of rat. Like I, I did not like rats. I was as scared of rats as I was of spiders <laughs> and, uh, and snakes, right? So I never want to touch them. I'm like, what am I doing with myself right now? And so I started doing it, but then they're like super cute and you realize like how smart they are. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and you, and it is a lot of work. It's like, you know, if you have like 40 animals, you're, it's like you have 40 children mm -hmm. and you're having to take care of them every day. You're going to, you have to feed them. You have to weigh them. You have to handle them, make sure that they're used to, to, um, to your handling. Because when you're doing an experiment, you don't want to be stressing them out, yeah. um, you know, because then they're not going to behave, uh, you know, normally. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So, so yeah, it, it was a lot of work and I started kind of doing this aging study. Uh, I had one uh, rat, uh, it was an aged rat and they're, they're, you know, they're pretty fat rats. Like they're almost like, uh, like a, a kilogram. They're like, you know, 800 uh, grams. So they're big guys. You got to sometimes hold them with two hands. <laughs> and uh, there's this one uh, aged rat and he had like these kind of gray hairs, just whiskers on the side. So I called him George Clooney. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I know I fell in, I fell in love with rats right away and I loved the research. It was really cool and very rewarding. Um, although it was a lot of uh, definitely hard work and, and uh, in caring for them and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, every day to day, and uh, I don't know, the thing that is uh, is cool specifically about my research is that you have one part, portion of the experiment that is behavioral, right? So you're taking care of the rodents, and you're putting them in the operant chambers to do their tasks, behavioral flexibility, they're playing their games, uh, you know, for sugar pellets. And then, and then you know, I go for a period where, you know, I'm working in the wet lab, and, uh, you know, I'm, uh, you know, uh, doing uh, brain punches or I'm doing immunohistochemistry staining for, you know, different proteins and looking at that underneath the microscope um, and, you know, at different brain regions and seeing how that might be changed from, you know, aging or whatever experimental manipulation I did. And then, you know, I go into uh, measuring steroids. And so it's, it's, it's kind of cool because you kind of get this uh, uh, large variety and you get a lot of um, a lot of kind of interesting data. But it is uh, a lot of 
uh, hard work and uh, and late nights. And I, you know, sometimes I it was the Christmas holidays and it was Christmas, and that's the only time because I was trying to study for my finals. You know, I couldn't do as much uh, research, so then I'm you know in, in at Christmas time doing immunohistochemistry mm-hmm. and uh, you know or on weekends and stuff like that. But then you know some t- so sometimes you work for like so many hours, but then you know sometimes you only work you know a week with when you work like twenty hours or something, right? So yeah. it's kind of uh, nice in that flexibility, but um, and yeah, it's it's super. I don't know, it's super cool. And going to these neuroscience conferences, like uh, when I was in my undergrad, I got the opportunity to go to Society for Neuroscience. Um, it is like the largest neuroscience mm-hmm. meeting, and uh, it was so bizarre for me because like you know you read about the guy in the textbook. And, uh, you know, you think of these like this old white dude with great, you know, like he's dead or something like that. <laughs> but then you see this guy and he's like 40 years old and he's young and like you see him dancing on the bar or something. Like that. <laughs> so it was like super bizarre, but super intriguing for me. And and, uh, yeah. and I always loved to like, you know, what's going on in the brain. And like I always liked how well, how do different drugs affect the brain. And I was always interested in that. And um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 super cool. But it was a big learning curve for me because, yeah, I didn't start off in um in 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 the sciences per se um although when i started doing research i took a lot of science classes to kind of catch myself up to speed but yeah Yeah, absolutely that's really interesting it's it's a cool perspective on like what it looks like to be a behavioral neuroscience researcher yeah yeah Yeah. like you know you got to do like surgeries you got to learn so many different skills so so often like i had to do radio assays so i had to like work with radioactive material Mm -hmm. um and uh so it's kind of cool because you learn so many different techniques um and, you know, I don't know if I'll ever do a radio immunoassay again, so I don't know how useful it is, but, um, you, <laughs> but you know. you can say you did it. Yeah, I can say I did it. It sounds pretty cool to say that, you know, I worked with radioactive material. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and so <laughs> I know I know from you guys talking to a couple of behavioral neuroscience students in our, at UBC, uh, there's a whole process of one, getting into the lab and working with the animals too, right? Like Absolutely. You guys have to make sure that you're... Uh, quarantine cleaned like everything make everything's clean when you're getting in there yeah there's a huge you know we have to get uh, tons of certification like we have to get like animal husbandry so how to take care of animals animal ethics like you know um we have to take like chemical safety uh um we have to yeah get in and clean because some of the um some of the places that we work in with the rodents they do uh you know research on say contagious diseases or you know things like that so we have to make sure that we're clean we're not bringing in any any outside uh kind of stuff and bringing it back out yeah so we you know we have to really kind of make sure that we that we're clean and we're not a uh, um kind of affecting anything for other places in in um in in the uh, research area yeah. yeah absolutely you don't want to bring anything in and affect the the actual yeah. animals yeah. in any way right confound your yours or somebody else's study or potentially exactly yeah, and it, something yeah. And, and yeah and it's and it's tough because you have all these kind of steps that you have to go in before you actually start kind of doing the research but it's good too because mm-hmm. you know it's good to have that training and that uh, expertise before um but yeah it's it's definitely a lot of uh, a lot of training and work and uh, and then sometimes too it's like it's tough because you know you have like these certain times that you have access to the operant chambers so I remember my first summer, I, I got an NSERC and, you know, so I got to do summer research. And um, NSERC is a, just a, a funding It's like yeah, a grant. Canadian funding yeah. thing, yeah. yeah. And uh, and I had to come in because I was like the rookie in the lab. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone had the prime times. And so I had to come in at 7 in the morning during the summertime every single morning to oh, like, kind of no. do my experiments. So. <laughs> <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> yeah. but, but then the next summer was good. I got the prime spot at 12 o'clock. So, oh, there you go. Yeah. There you are. Yeah. Yeah. You, got, you made up for it. Yeah. Working with the, the the rats, I guess, is kind of what I was interested in yeah. saying. Like, what oh. what's the relationship with these rats? Because you said you have forty, like yeah. you're working with like forty children, so it's obviously an intimate relationship with these rats. Oh, and, for sure. And so you have to kind of balance the fact that 
they are your test subjects. Yeah. And they're also like you feel like they're kind of like pets at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. No, for sure. It's like um yeah, I mean it's it's a, it's definitely a tough balance sometimes, right? Um but you definitely realize that, you know, some of the rodents have little personalities. Mm-hmm. Some of them are a little bit more feistier than other ones. Like I, I one thing is that you're always like kind of worried about getting bit cuz mm-hmm. like, you know, uh rats do have like pretty like big teeth. Uh, and, and you know they can dig in pretty deep. Yeah. Um, I was lucky enough where I never got bit. Oh, uh, nice. I was you know some call me the rat whisperer, <laughs> but uh, you know you just gotta kind of uh, treat them treat them good and kind of just be confident with them and you know it's just like uh, like anything. But yeah, it was pretty freaky at first when I first got uh, my first set of rats rats in and I didn't really know you know I mean like you take your training and stuff like that but you you never really had to deal with it you know yeah. like on that scale hands on and yeah. and and you really have to take care of them. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, every day and just make sure everything's going good and you're treating them all the same. You're handling them for about the same amount of time. Yeah. Um, you know, so some, in, you know, some aren't getting overhandled or, you know, in whatever group. Yeah. And then, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a lot of work and, uh, uh, you know, um, feeding them, like you have to feed each individual one, you got to weigh each individual one. Um, you're like reinforcing to me why I can't have a pet at my, in my house. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, this is like, I'm so like in my head. I'm like, I never have the time to feed. Like if I had a cat, I wouldn't be able to feed it. I wouldn't be able to be there enough for it. I'm oh, like yeah. having 40 rats to manage. It, it's definitely a yeah. different ballpark. It's definitely a lot of work. Like I remember my girl, my girlfriend wanted to get um, a hamster <laughs> and uh, I was like, I don't know about that, <laughs> especially while hamsters I hear that they like just, you know, they really run all night and they're like kind of, you know, really loud and they stay up. Right. I was like, well, maybe we could get a, uh, a rat <laughs> instead because the rats are actually pretty cute and they're super smart. Yeah. I, I like I, I would probably get a rat one day as a pet. Uh, I always thought that if I got a rat as a pet, I would probably, uh, I would want to get like a, a chamber where they, they could like kind of, uh, you know, press a button for like, if they wanted like disco lights on or if they wanted like club music or whatever they want, right? Like they could kind of select what they want. They could like, you know, be really nice and like lots of kind of like tunnels and things that they could go through. So yeah, I mean, yeah. you have the insight into these uh, because you work with, you'd worked with them so long that they definitely would seem to be like a smart, intelligent animal to have as a pet. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. How off, like how much do you run or how long would a trial be with one rat? And you, do you, you run all 40 of them, right? Cause you're running yeah, so, all the different groups. So how long would it take? So, so in my masters, it was actually, um, so going on a larger scale, not just trial. So, uh, and I'll get to the trial after, but yeah. um, when I had my master's, I'd have uh, 40 uh, rats in at a time and we'd call it a cohort. So I had a cohort of uh, right. rats in. A class. Because you can't, you know, you <laughs> yeah. only have so many operant chambers for them to kind of do the tasks on. And then, so I would uh, have to, you know, and say I could only fit in 16 uh, at a time on a task. So I'd do, you know, uh, 16, uh, one hour, um, and then I'd do 16 the next hour and then eight the next hour. Okay. So I'd have to do all that. So I could run it like in parallel, 16, say, at a time, right? Okay. And then so they're doing these things and these these uh, these boxes are kind of, they're programmed for the task. And so, you know, an inter- a trial might be uh, like 15 seconds. Okay. So so then, uh, but but to get them to press a lever, you know, you have to train them for that too. Yeah. So, and, so a lot of this training actually takes some time too. Yeah, before the trials even yeah. start, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. so you you uh, so you do that and, and then they start doing the task and you got to get them to reach criterion 
And so they have to try to, you know, not get omissions and omission is basically they don't make a response at all. Right. So you got to train them to do this for the sugar pellet and they, they do learn it. Some, some don't, some are like, you know, not as smart not as interested. others, <laughs> some are not as smart as others, <laughs> but, um, but eventually they'll learn it. And, you know, so a, an hour sometimes it would take for a one, one day, one training day, um, for, for a rat and you had 40 rats at a time. Right. And then, so I'd run them through the experiment and then I would finish with those rodents and then I'd get in another set of 40 and then I'd have to do that again. So literally for my masters, it was like almost like every weekend, uh, was either a test weekend or getting new animals in or having to do surgeries and stuff like that. And so it was like, you know, back to back to back to back. Right. And it was a lot of work because in my, uh, um, in my experiment, because I had four groups, you, you know, and to get the N up, you had to have quite a quite a few rats. Yeah, we always say in in research or in psychology and behavior neuroscience, N is just the number of participants. You have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we always say N just N. because that's what we that's the nomenclature we use in in studies. You're like, what's your N? Uh, the, the bigger the number, the better. Yeah, exactly. The well, more I, participants. I, I remember too when I first got in the lab. I went to my first lab meeting. And they were like speaking a different language. Yeah. They were like talking about, yeah, the TH and the PFC and the, you know, uh, oh, what's the standard curve? And, yeah. uh, you know, did you check that? And it's just like, I was like, what the heck am I doing? <laughs> I yeah. was like, I it was happens. Like, it happens to everybody at different levels. And I think that's why I love talking about this and yeah. getting people on the same page. Oh, yeah. Uh, or at least trying to. It's, we use so much jargon. <laughs> so much jargon. And it's just like, you know, I kind of almost had to like fake it till I make it or like I'd like write something down. Yeah. What, is, go, what is go that? Google it afterwards. <laughs> like, go Google what it is THF? G. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and you're like just nod your head and you, and you, exactly. you get through it <laughs> so so yeah it's, it's a lot but behavioral neuroscience i realize it, it's once you learn the language it's actually it's just like anything and yeah. and so it's it's not too bad it's not too difficult and, and it makes it makes sense but it is a little bit of a learning curve learning that language right awesome well ryan i think that, yeah. yeah that's been fantastic i think that we should take a little break um we'll hit you with a few fastball questions and then we'll take we'll come back second half myths misconceptions and we'll uh, we'll go from there yeah sounds Sound good, good? Yeah. so everybody uh take a moment top up the glass get a fresh coffee kick back relax um and we'll have ryan on in a second to answer some fastball questions <laughs> hello everybody hopefully your glasses are filled you're ready to go we're going to kick off a round of uh well i've been calling them fastball questions but just as of today as of today i don't know why that's stuck in my head what I, I baseball season no. That's much that's like it's over. I know over it's over. <laughs> <laughs> but I, oh, I know. His rapid fire was before. Rapid fire questions. Rapid fire questions. Okay, we're sticking with rapid the fire. Guns? Yeah, not is this the drug lord? Thing? <laughs> and, <then laughs> and they're all going to be curveballs. No fastballs here. <laughs> awesome. Okay. What uh what's your favorite animal? Is uh, that right? <laughs> the, probably the platypus. Platypus. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Or the anteater. Anteater. Yeah. No, I'm just big kidding. Arthur fan. When no, I just thought those, yeah. I just I thought, thought Arthur was an aardvark. Oh, he's an aardvark. <laughs> a lot of A's going on. Yeah. I, I just thought those were really weird. Actually, my favorite animal is the wolf. Okay. Um, you know, I'm I'm First Nations, and uh, my uh, my grandma, um, you know, she really, really liked the wolf, and so I kind of, you know, kind of I like that as well. Yeah. Definitely. So that's my favorite. Yeah. Cool. Uh, favorite season. Summer. So my birthday, I get presents and, uh, you know, uh, get the sun, get to go to the beach. Uh, don't have to take courses as much. So, yeah, summer. <laughs> fine I, choice. A fine choice. Uh, favorite mythical creature? Um, hmm. I guess the unicorn. Yeah. I don't know. Simple. That's like, is that too cliche? Yeah, a little bit. Well, no, <laughs> uh, favorite dinner dish? Um, ribs. Okay. Yeah. Great choice. Ribs, yeah. Are you a breakfast, lunch, or dinner guy? Uh, I'm a dinner guy. Mm. Yeah. Follow any. But I usually eat my dinner at lunch. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> so you're a lunch guy, but you eat dinner. <laughs> but, di- but it's a dinner. Yeah. Oh, I got you, got so you. you're a dinner, not a supper guy. Well, so this is the whole thing. I got an argument with my girlfriend recently because <laughs> my grandma calls dinner lunch and supper. Supper. Su- like, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, the evening. The evening meal. meal. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't uh, even have a name for it. Just so I don't know if meal. that's like right or wrong, but yeah. So I'm dinner supper guy. My, under- my understanding of it, I think I've had an argument with my family as well, is I think dinner is supposed to technically be the largest meal of the day. Okay. And what is supper? Supper is just the, the evening. The evening meal. one, I thought. Yeah, okay. That's my understanding of it. I got really technical about it. Should we Google that it. one too? <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for Google. We'll leave that up to be, uh, as a hot debate. that people. An do. evening meal. There we go. Yeah, supper is, yeah. yeah. And dinner's I, I think it's supposed to be the largest meal of the day, but that technically could be breakfast for some people. So mm-hmm. favorite so. Olympic sport? Um That's a tough one. Probably I don't know, uh hockey. Yeah, mm-hmm. hockey. Uh, hockey, um but also the one hundred meter. One hundred meter oh, yeah. classic. Yeah. 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 It's just so fun to watch. Yeah. If yeah. you uh could do something else. If you had another option for a career, what would it be? Um, either be um, a detective, undercover detective, because, you know, it's kind of like, sci- you know, you're figuring things out. Um, a uh, professional fan- fantasy sports, uh, <laughs> fan- fantasy football um, person, or um, a uh, a drug lord in charge of, like, <laughs> you know, the whole, like, world production of something. <laughs> <laughs> Unique answers. I didn't expect three answers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I fully expected you to say musician because I've been to a show. <laughs> you, you're a good oh, musician. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That'd, that'd that, be... I'm like, okay, it's not even going to be a musician. Well, three completely random. I, so for that, like, I would love to be yeah, a musician or whatever, but, yeah. you know, I... You're still doing it on that the side would, anyway. That wouldn't be a job for me. That would be, like, you know, no. uh, the best thing ever in the world. That'd just be... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Feel like a job. A good <laughs> <laughs> Wicked. Awesome. I think that. I yeah. think that's great. Cool. Ryan, you've been a great sport answering our rapid-fire questions. Uh, all right. We'll take a quick sec. We'll reset. We'll come back. Miss Misconceptions. Cheers. What's up? My name's Ryan. Hope you enjoy your brain break. We're about to go into some pretty deep stuff here, rapid stuff. So get ready for it. No, we're done the rapid Welcome stuff. back, your host. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> we're done the rapid stuff. Now we're slowing it down, man. Okay, okay. <laughs> it's okay, This though. is the slow jam, second half. You're all hopped up after the rapid fire. Yeah. It's all good. Okay. <laughs> we always do myths, misconceptions, and then we do cool facts that are related to your research area. Uh, so yours is kind of broad because we, start, we really talked about neuroscience, behavioral neuroscience as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we also talked about executive functioning and uh, behavior change and behavior flexibility, right? Um, so do you have any myths or misconceptions that you know of in your, in your area when it comes to behavioral neuroscience or just animal research in general, uh, that you want to bring to our attention and and kind of demystify? Yeah. So in behavioral neuroscience, there's a huge myth out there and it's that, you know, dopamine is the, the reward molecule, the pleasure molecule. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, and this specific brain region called the nucleus accumbens is, uh, the, the pleasure center of the brain. And, you know, you know, it's often talked about in the media, uh, you know, when talking about drug addiction or any kind of thing that I see on the news anywhere, it's still talked about. And yep. we found out looking at your phone. Oh, it's a dopamine hit. Yeah. A dopamine <laughs> hit. You're getting some pleasure there, yeah. but you know, we've known for like over 20 years that it's not involved in, you know, it's, it's not involved in pleasure per se and like the nucleus accumbens is not the pleasure center in fact um you could think about this kind of reward thing as being 
uh, kind of this motivational thing of for reward is being split into two different things. Um, you know, your liking of something, which is typically what we think of as hedonic mm-hmm. or, or your pleasure or, or you know, is if you like something. Yeah. But then there's also something called uh, you're wanting for something. So how much you're willing to work for it. Right. And, um, you know, what dopamine does is it, it's involved in that wanting system and that working kind of working for it system. And so um, when, you know, in, in drug addiction, what happens is um, uh, your, your dopamine system is kind of on, on, on overdrive. And, and what happens is you're actually willing to work more for this dr- drug over time. And a lot of people actually will report that they don't like it any more than when they first, than when they first did it. It's, yeah. you know, that pleasurable, that liking aspect is actually not there. Right. Um, and, and, but you're, you're willing to work for it. You'll do anything to kind of, to, to get that. So it's mm-hmm. more kind of involved in this motivational wanting aspect and not necessarily the liking. Right. seems like this more kind of hedonic liking thing is, um, more driven by opioids, um, um, you know, uh, and, and, and dopamine is more involved with that kind of motivational working for something aspect. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I think I was saying the same thing and more or less like we, uh, just as humans in general, like to have an answer for why something happens. And then we like to have this, what we call like a silver bullet Yeah, where it's like, this is the, this is the cure to cancer or this is the cure to whatever. Or this is why we do this. This is why we get angry. Cause the like similar in the sense to like the amygdala. Yeah, exactly. Being, Oh, you get your amygdala is activated. That means you're probably angry or you're going to be hostile or something like that. Uh, And so those are things that I think as humans, we just want to have an answer to something. Yeah. It's it's easy to, uh, to try to simplify things and, you know, especially, um, in the media and stuff like that, you know, uh, you sometimes want to get views and get people interested. So that, I think that's kind of like the balance between science communication and trying to get people involved in wanting to learn about science is that you kind of want to do want to make things kind of understandable and like easy and kind of this kind of silver bullets kind of thing. But but sometimes that kind of works against and it perpetuates kind of, uh, you know, myths or falsehoods. Um, so I think it's yeah, it's this balance. You do want to kind of, you know, and science isn't actually that complicated. I think I think that uh, you can communicate it easily and still be correct in certain uh, aspects. But um, for some reason, yeah, with dopamine, it's kind of gone on for a long time and i think i think because it you know it's gone on for a long time it just kind of continues to go on and it continues to snowball because you know people like will go you know try to do a little bit of research on something or read some uh look up a video or something and then they'll go see a oh, pleasure molecule so when they're describing it you yeah. know they'll describe it that way yeah yeah it's, it's yeah i've definitely heard it i think everybody kind of hears that dopamine's like oh yeah i'm, I'm filled with dopamine right now so i'm super happy yeah exactly. I'm, gonna, like, I'm really it's really pleasurable kind of thing uh interesting myth in lieu of a uh water cooler fact about your specific research uh we've t- we've had a conversation about rock paper scissors and yeah. how you've kind of implemented your statistical knowledge into rock paper scissors yeah well i guess uh i you know i always try to think when i'm doing my research and when i'm learning how can i apply it to other parts of my of my life right yeah. and there's this kind of cool rock paper scissors tournament it sounds like really cheesy and dumb <laughs> but it's like this guy who's a comedian and it's super funny and you know, you, you go and you can like, you know, have a beer or something and, and play rock, paper, scissors for money. So I started like, okay, well, what can I do with behavioral flexibility with this? So then I started like mm. think, and I, and I started rationalizing through it. Okay. Well, um, you know, do, do people stay or do they switch often? Yeah. Right. And then I kind of like, you know, track the old question when it comes to rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I try to track like, you know, if I was going to play someone in a different round, like, you know, if I knew where the bracket was up, right. Like what do they pick most often? So mm. if they pick say rock and paper more often, uh, and they very rarely pick scissors. Then I thought to myself, well, what would be the best What's the optimal thing, to, the optimal thing to pick? Well, paper, 
right. because it's, I either it's tie time. or win, right? Yeah. Right? Because they pick you know that like those two you know eighty percent of the time say or mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. So then I'd pick I'd do paper a lot, and then I'd also try to think of like okay, do they do they stay or do they switch after a loss or after a win? Right. Um, and and when they and and then also you know talking I talked earlier about regressive errors when uh, when you get a bunch of ties in a row. Um, and and, and where do they revert back to? What should we, uh, you know? So do they revert back to rock? It seems like when they get a bunch of ties and they're kind of in this stressful situation. Mm-hmm. So I started doing that, and um, it's kind of funny though. So um, I've been very successful at winning through multiple rounds. You have to win four rounds to win um, to to win the championship because there's like you know sometimes like fifty people or more in this right. in this. Um, and is it be- is it best of? It's best of. So it starts off with best of five. Okay. So that's the other so, thing. So you have three three losses to play with yeah so you have three losses and and you learn more information about the person as you play with them right yeah. so you can watch them when they play other people but then when you're playing you also get information yeah so the more you want to you know even if you tie the first one you, that that's good um because then you learn information about them um but yeah so i would you know it starts off with best out of five and then in the last like the semifinals and the finals is best out of seven so I've I, I'm pretty consistent in making it out of the first and second round. <laughs> I've actually made it to the finals seven times. Holy! Um, but ironically, I think that I overthink it because I've been to the finals seven times, so final two, but I haven't won once. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So I think I overthink <laughs> it. Like, and honestly, being there seven times, if I just went random, yeah, I, I, I would have probably had that, yeah. at least you know at least like two three wins. Good so. chance you would have won fifty percent. Exactly right. <laughs> but I didn't, and I, I overthought it, and so That's but so but yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting that even with things like that you know your research can kind of affect how you think about things and and that's also the cool thing about science i think that's a really cool point to end on is that i mean just because we're doing research in one area doesn't mean you can't stop being fascinated in different areas of your life and different areas that aren't even necessarily have to be research based yeah exactly oh and uh so one one interesting fact because i know you want to know an interesting oh you got one now yeah (laughs) uh the whole researcher he's a famous uh, neuroscientist he came up with differentiating the liking versus wanting that i talked about Mm -hmm. his name is kent barrage and uh, he came to UBC for a talk one time. And as a graduate student, sometimes you get to go out for lunch with him. So I went out for lunch with him. And, you know, everyone's kind of doing their, like, talks. Like, oh, yeah, this is the kind of research I do. And, you know, and uh, so I, I, you know, I was just talking. And he overheard me talking about because I played the Rock, Paper, Scissors tournament or something like that the night before. And he heard me talking about it. And then so I started to explain to him my strategy. And then I actually got to play Kent Barrage in Rock, Paper, Scissors, this famous <laughs> neuroscientist. And I think my supervisors were like kind of like when I told them that they're like a little bit like, oh, my God, I can't believe you did that. <laughs> but, um, you know, because I think like I think he received it. Well, like he received it well. But like I think they're like, oh, that could go either way. That could go terribly. <laughs> but yeah. So. Did you the most important question? Yeah. Did you win? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's, that, was a, that was a really fun episode, Ryan. It was really fun recording with you uh, and learning more about the area that you've transitioned out of. So we are interested in having you back on if, you, if you're interested. For sure. And, and talking more about how this work that we talked about a lot today it can translate and how you can translate it into human research or, or human or Im- impacting humans. Exactly. And, and, and I'm excited to talk about it because there's so much cool stuff going out there and studies that have already been done. Uh, mimicking uh, um, studies and findings between animals and humans. And uh, it's really, uh, really cool stuff. So I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, we're excited to hear about it. Absolutely. All right. With that, we'll call it another episode of Brain Buzz. Thank you all for joining us, listening in. Uh, It's been nice to have you along for the ride. Uh, If you've enjoyed this episode or previous ones, you can leave us a review. We're on Google Play. We're on iTunes, uh, Apple 
podcast or whatever they've renamed that to rebranded <laughs> yeah. it as um again we're still working on spotify that's going to be something we're trying to do over the christmas break so hopefully uh hopefully we'll get that straightened out as well um you can also just drop us a line you can head over to brainbuzzpodcast.com where we've got all our episodes a bio of all our guests information about the episodes and links to any material that we've discussed uh but you can also drop us a line there send us a shoot a uh, quick little email shoot us a quick little email and let us know what you thought if you've enjoyed something if you didn't if you want to see something done differently or if hell if you'd like to be on the show at some point in the future let us know we'd love to have you on or if you know people that might want yeah. to be interested in coming on that yeah. are doing research in, that you know of, right? Absolutely. have new guests. Yeah. Great. So uh, with that, Ryan, again, thank you very, very much. Uh, we'll look forward to having you on yet again very soon. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Cool. All right. Great. Cheers. Cheers.